In James McBride's latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, we're in Pottstown, Pennsylvania in 1972. A human skeleton's been discovered at a construction site for a new housing development. Who holds the secrets of this discovery? The answer might be found among the residents of Chicken Hill, a neighborhood where immigrant Jews and African Americans have lived side by side for decades, sharing life's sorrows and joys and looking out for each other. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Chicken Hill is the place where Moshe and Hannah Ludlow lived and where Hannah ran the Heaven and Earth grocery store, which served the neighborhood of diverse characters, African-Americans and European immigrants. Moshe is a Romanian-born theater owner who integrated the town's first dance hall. When the state comes looking for Dodo, a deaf black child, with claims that the boy needed to be institutionalized, Chicken Hill residents come together to execute a plan to retrieve the boy, keep him safe, and give him the life that Hannah would have wanted for him and everyone else, a life of happiness in a safe and loving community. But the denizens of Chicken Hill won't have such an easy time of it. Their wider space in Pottstown is still one characterized by bigotry, hypocrisy, and inequality. How can the love that Hannah represents win out in protecting young Dodo and everyone else involved in the desire to ensure a community led by love and charity? I spoke to author James McBride about his latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. So The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. Can you set the table and tell us what this novel is about? It's about a lot of things, but I I would like to hear this from you. What do you tell people when you tell them what this is about? I just say it's a it's a novel about, you know, equality, I suppose, and the delight and satisfaction that comes with it. When did the seedbed of this story first take root? Where did it come from? I mean, you've built this entire world with so many different characters and situations, but do you remember what the seed of the idea was, where it came from? Um I mean, I, I suppose it began in the office of a man named Bill Saltzman in Philadelphia in 1976. I suppose I was 18 uh, or 19, and I applied for a job as a dishwasher at, that I found in the paper. In Phil- my, my family moved to Philadelphia from New York when I was in college in my freshman year. But we, we arrived in Philadelphia, and I was a freshman at Oberlin. Oberlin, which is in Ohio. And I came home, not to New York, but I came home to Philadelphia. I needed a job. And I looked in the paper and I saw an ad for a dishwasher for at a camp for so-called handicapped kids. And I applied and I ended up, this man named Bill Saltzman called the camp director and said, I got a kid here. He said, I got a boy here. <laughs> he said, he said, I got a boy here who's just too smart to be a counselor. <laughs> and he sent me to see the the guy who ran the camp, whose name was Cy Friend. And, you know, Cy was, he was just great. He, he apologized for Bill Saltzman's language, which, frankly, you know, I, I don't care what you call me so long as you don't call me late for dinner. But, uh, and Bill Saltzman was a, he was a very kind person, and, you know, from a different generation. Long story short, I got a job at this camp for disabled kids. And it changed my life, so-called disabled children. And it really changed my whole life. I worked there for four summers and um, the camp and the man who ran it changed my life. So I always wanted to write about it, but I never could figure out how to do it. I've heard you say that before in an interview that you couldn't find sort of an access point into writing about 
the Variety Club camp. Um, he just couldn't do it. What was it this time? I mean, I feel like there's something with the story of uh, of Moses that we learn if we didn't know it before, and these other characters of Dodo, Hannah, and so forth. But they must have come well after you decided, obviously, okay, I'm going to write that Cyfriend story. I mean, you know, Hannah and Dodo and all of the other characters were really, you know, parts of my life and my imagination that came about when I, because what I really wanted to say in this book is that we are all pretty much alike, despite our cultural and racial and ethnic differences, so-called differences. And I wanted to say it in a way that wasn't boring and in a way that was fun and, you know, in a way that's real. When I became a writer and, and after writing, you know, all the books that I've written, I tried to attack the story several times over the years. And I realized at a certain point that I just couldn't do it because I was writing about a camp and it was just campy, you know, the Kids go to sleep and then they go to camp. You know, they, they, I mean, even though this was a disabled children's camp, it was still camp. And it just felt corny, didn't feel real. But the only chapter that, the only words that stood out were the, was the chapter about Moshi, who in real life, I mean, in real life, in my imaginary real life, donated the, 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 the land for the camp. And so when I pushed back into that part of the book, every time I got to that chapter, it was the only thing that started, that really sung. Those words really, the the, the scenes, the, the, not the words, but the, the idea, the spirit of it just sung off the page. And so I scrapped the rest of it after years and years of trying to make the camp scenes work and the characters. And I just went with Moshe and he led me to everyone else. His wife Chona and she led me to Bernice, her best friend, you know, the, the, the black girl who was a neighbor and then you know, their songs began to intermingle and, until it became a kind of, you know, orchestra, you know. You listen for the sound of your characters. You listen for the, you listen for the song they sing. And, and if you're lucky, you hear it and then it finds its place. Well, I want to ask you a couple of things about that. Someplace, I don't know if it was um, Kirkus or Publishers Weekly or someplace, I read, you know, the usual three-word the series that you come across of descriptions about your books, and it was boiled down to something like community, mercy, and karmic justice. And let me tell you, that tracks. It tracks. And not only does it track, but it includes the word that pops up when people talk about your books, and that's the idea of community, most especially. Mercy and karmic justice, I think if I talk about that or ask you to talk about that in terms of this novel, we're going to spoil so many things for for those people out there who are reading your book. So let's stop on community. And community, I should be clear, it's about a space for everyone. But I've heard you say in interviews that tribalism, that kind of community, doesn't work. And this idea of tribalism is perhaps part of so many ills throughout American history and to the present day. But community, can you talk about the idea of community that orbits this heaven and earth grocery store and chicken hill. And I, I really ask this, it's so open-ended, I'm sorry, but I really ask this around the Venn diagram, right, of the Jewish community and the African-American community here in Pottstown on chicken hill. And then even in Hemlock Rose, which is sort of separate, but connected. I, I just wonder if you can talk about this idea of community that people very often 
use that word to talk about your books? Well, you know, in a basic way, you know, we're all connected. I mean, if you read Herman Melville's uh, Moby Dick, the first two, three, four chapters of the book basically deal with the community of New Bedford, where this guy's wandering around and he sees this community. And it's not a community that, you know, readers have ever paid attention to. Or even readers now, readers say, was New Bedford really like that? It probably was. So for me, I'm always taken with the notion that, you know, leaders and politicians and people and, and you know, corporate interests who are trying to who make money by showing us how different we are. That's junk food. That's cake icing and potato chips. But the people who connect us to keep us together are people who really do whatever they can to keep the the deeper notion of community vibrant. I'll give you a living example. When Barbara Bush, when Mrs. Barbara Bush was alive, she was the furthest thing from my world. I had to go to some kind of event that she gave in Manhattan because my mother really wanted to go. My mother wanted to meet her. When I went backstage, they were giving an award or something to a Mexican mother for learning to read because Mrs. Bush started the literacy partners, which I'm sure is still active. But in any case, when they took this mother back there to Mrs. Bush, I saw this with my own eye. <laughs> she sat down and when Mrs. Bush started talking to her, it was like two women, they could have been sitting in Albuquerque or Brooklyn or the Bronx. They just chatted like two mothers talking about their children. And I've always been taken with the idea that if grandmothers ruled this world, a lot of this nonsense that what that goes on would not happen. And that, to me, is community. Now, you can place that in any framework you want. You can be real cynical and say, yeah, but blah, 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 blah. Yeah, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah in it. But the fact is, at that moment, that's the spirit. That's the same spirit that happens when Miles Davis puts his trumpet to his mouth, or Yo-Yo Ma picks up his cello and plays, or uh, Leonard Bernstein stands in front of the New York Philharmonic and waves his baton, or Bruce Springsteen steps in front of 40,000 people at the, at the Meadowlands and plays. Community means we are trying to get along and we are going to do this and we are going to be together, you know? So does that make any sense? It does, but it also, but I'm also thinking about the way that you write children. There's this idea that you've expressed in, in interviews where you say that innocence powers great writing and it's a tool for writing. And I feel like that's different from you know, this idea of the Bildungsroman, right? This idea of the chipping away of innocence is the point of the story. I feel like the characters that you have, that's it's different. It's it's not the chipping away of innocence. That happens, but it's the innocence. The innocence itself, not the not what's chipped away that is driving this. So the writing, yes, but the community in your stories. So characters like Dodo and Monkey Pants, but also Bernice again and Hannah in the first grade and that Robin and Sparrow chapter that I have to tell you absolutely did me in. It sort of is like this a little onion in the good Lord bird jumps out at me now as I'm as I'm trying to ask this question. But I see the, the idea of innocence in your work, too, as part of 
community. So the younger folk in that community may be with those grandmothers or those mother figures. So just to stay on the innocence is what is driving so much in this book. And it's not this blind optimism or, you know, a lack of maturity or a lack of discernment or a lack of questioning, but there's something else almost ineffable that frankly in 2023 is really fresh and really new to have these chapters with Bernice and Hannah in the first grade and then later with Dodo and Monkey Pants at Penhurst. I just feel like this is something that I see that is such a part of this novel, but that is such a part of, of a community. And I can connect it back to Dodo at the Heaven and Earth Grocery, helping out, doing his chores and all of that. I don't know. I just feel like there's something, yes, the grandmothers for sure, but the communities that exist are really for for the young too. As you say, their mother, the mother, the Mexican mother, but the, what mothers and grandmothers do for the generations to come. So I just, I feel like it's all of a piece, The that youth also, not just the youth, let's say in, in a camp, but also the youth within uh, a place like Chicken Hill. I don't know. I just feel like that just jumps out at me. And I'm sorry, I'm just so long-winded and I'm not really asking a question. I just I have- think I think what you what you're getting at is, you know, how why is it that we as adults cannot contain, cannot bottle up the purity that we had as children when we saw someone walking down the street who was not like us? But we liked them and we got to know them and we wanted to get to know them. And then suddenly we we find ourselves separate from them because we realize they don't live on our block. They don't live on our street. They don't speak our language. They don't look like us. They're not like us. And so what happens is we as adults, we, we grow these protective shells, shells and we use anything we need to keep that protective shell around us because we're afraid or we've been we've been tutored and we've been monkeyed into being afraid so that you know we drive big cars that have big grills or when in the city we get in this we live in a little box and then we get into another little box that transports us to another little box and we get in that little box and we you know then we transmit messages to millions of people saying that you know this city is an urban spot it's horrible these things disconnect us from the things that make us that make us human and inspire our creativity and and which is really where America would really which that's what America really is all about. You know what I've done in this book is just tried to show that when you do believe in the goodness of other people, and you stop looking for you know stupid things to be angry about or afraid about, you find that they're pretty much just like you. And you know that's really the American idea. And there is a lot of innocence in that. You know. Now this there's some of that some of that innocence is is sort of peppered sprinkled you know in a literary sense on just part of the population when that innocence belongs to us all. So I don't know if that answers your curiosity, but that's you know the business of childhood innocence is something that is often abused in the literary world because you know every kid is innocent. And, how many stories have we read about the you know the poor girl who was kidnapped and she's so sweet and then the father goes and he, he takes his gun out boom and he blows people away. you know violence doesn't do anything it does it, you know it, it doesn't do anything for stories and it doesn't do anything in real life other than create enemies that come back later but I mean the purity of a mother's love the purity of a father's attention and the purity of family and the hard work of 
raising and teaching and, and giving children what they need. That's really what this book is about, in my opinion. Speaking of this idea of, of purity, I, and this may not make any sense, but I think I want to ask you about marbles. Reading this book, I realized and I remembered from my childhood how special marbles are of all things, right? The most unlikely thing, how kind of magical. My daughter is 25 years old, but she still has a small tin of marbles from her childhood. What is it about marbles, right? But small details like those in this book, sort of like your description of the train in that first story, Five Carat Soul, but a marble in this novel, a marble of all things. And it's sort of the way that the neighborhood kids can pay for things uh, at the grocery store, it, you know, and then it becomes, I don't want to give too much away and spoil a whole bunch of things, but then there's a, a marble that appears later on in the book. Marbles, I just, uh, the small elements, the small, tiny, everyday things of a life in this book, they just become so resonant. And it goes back to this idea of the the smaller and, and more specific the idea or the element, the more universally appreciated it can be. Um, right down to like a schoolroom friendship between these two neighbor girls, right? So the marbles and these these small things. I'm just uh, I'm just well, amazed at, at the alchemy that that you manage with something like that. Well, you you know you always tell a small story when you tell a good story. A good story is a small story, and the details really you know matter in stories. So, um, you know these things would you know they were they were just devices that allowed characters that gave these are devices that allow characters to 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 function and to move and these devices you know be they a, a marble or an apple or a ceiling fan or you know they, they can become symbolic if there are real characters around them that have meaning because a simple lug wrench can can mean many things it can mean something to a car mechanic and see it can mean something to a you know a burglar and it can mean something else to a um, you know, to a, a mother who's uh, learning how to take uh, learning plumbing for the first time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these were just devices that I used to show how we're connected. Yeah. Um, and 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 I, I'm you know I'm glad to to, to know that were, you know effective at least in your opinion. You know. Yeah, I mean, I so there was a one part where I I sort of went took a step back and said, how does James McBride know what a French stitch is? And he knows so much about stonemasonry. I mean, these sorts of details, I would always sort of take a step back and wonder about your research process, or if you know, these are just your powers of observation, and the way that you live your life is just you know, know about so many things, including. Well, I mean, I, I can answer that easily. I, you know, I was a reporter for many years. You know, I worked at the, the Boston Globe, at People Magazine, and my last job was at the Washington Post. And you know, when I was thirty, I, I quit journalism, but I didn't quit the lessons that journalism taught me, which is that you have to report deep. And then, when you become a writer of books, you realize that ninety percent of what you use, what what ninety percent of what you learn, you don't use. But the ten percent you do use, you know, it, it has to be good so that the reader is tricked into believing you know what you're talking about, <laughs> because <laughs> I really don't. 
that that's a that's an old journalistic thing you know that you know journalists are like that they can they they're great to be around because they know a little bit about everything but they know a lot about nothing you know <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of exciting. but um so in the case of the uh, heaven and earth grocery store i just had to do the research because you you're asking the reader to, to suspend the disbelief and you better make it work otherwise it just sounds like uh you know it it, it sounds quote-unquote all made up it, it is a, a kind of a malpractice i feel like when those things are missing from from a novel i mean these are these are the w things that where you are building layers of a of a kind of reality i have to say that just adds so much i mean it, it may be one phrase in one paragraph on one page of the novel that may have taken quite a long time to cook to be able to say something about a French stitch or or a tunnel or plumbing or or anything else, but I suspect that you don't have too much research to do in the area of music. I feel like like that must have come; those parts of the book must have come so easily to you. The way that music is integrated here. So once again, music is very important in your book, as as it seems to be in all of your books. Can you talk about the music in the book? It, you know, the idea of Chick Webb, for instance, there, there are real uh, world-class musicians woven into this fiction. Um, and I just love the way you do that and the way that you did that with uh, The Good Lord Bird, for example. But um, can you talk a little bit about that? And I wish there were like um, a Spotify playlist to accompany uh, this book, because I'd sit, sit there and listen to it all day, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, because Moshe was a theater owner, and because, you know, I, I was fascinated with the whole idea of Yiddish theater, which was just rich and full of talent. And I, I got turned on to Yiddish music, you know, klezmer music years ago when uh, a friend of mine named Don Byron came to Philadelphia with the, the New England Conservatory Klezmer Ensemble. I've, I've always just really, I, I like all kinds of music. I like country and Western. I like all kinds of music. And so this was just an opportunity to present some of those names to people so they would maybe go back and check out who these people were. Mickey Katz and Chick Webb and, and so many others, you know, um, Mario Bowser and the Afro-American Cuban All-Stars. And, you know, these these people were wonderful. They did great. You know, they, they sounded great. And they, you know, character, listen, when you write about music, music is very hard to write about. And I don't really enjoy a lot of music writing in part because the writer gets lost in this whole business of, oh, and the sound and, the, you know, gosh, <laughs> and the green colors and there were blue <laughs> colors and orange colors. I don't want to hear that. I want to know. I want to vanish into the spirit of what the music inspires, not the music itself. The music speaks for itself. So we just want the vapors. And so what I'm trying to do is shove the vapors into the, into the, into the, I don't want to say lyric, but into the, you know, into the, into the words, into the picture. Mm -hmm. um, I, and you, you can't really write about music. You just write with music because it's not something you can really write. It's like a Jackson Pollock like painting or something, or, you know, it, it's just, it, it it's like a Mary Surratt. She's a great uh, sur surrealist American painter. Um, Cassatt, Mary Cassatt. Cassatt, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, I mean, you can't really write about it. You just say, wow, where did she get this kid? Who is this kid and why? Yeah. And, you know, that's where you start your riff, you yeah. know? Well, Hannah loves to read. And you write that she read everything as a child, comics, detective books, dime novels. 
And she read about socialism, unions, Jewish newspapers, publications in Hebrew, and books on Jewish life. And I start to see, I love that, by the way, I love this detail about her. But I can see something in the line from your mother, who we read about in your 1995 memoir, The Color of Water, to this character. Yeah, well, I mean, it was really more my grandmother, but my mother as well. I mean, they were two Jewish women in the South living in, you know, very difficult times for Jewish people in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and my grandmother, she had polio and she she worked in a store and she, you know, she married, she was, she was in a very bad marriage and she, you know, I wanted her to be loved. So I put her on the page and, and, and made her loved. My mother had, you know, many issues as a little girl growing up in that situation in a dysfunctional household and books were her escape. And, you know, so that, that made it, that made it easy. But what Hona, who I call Chona, mm-hmm. some people call her Hana, whatever you would call her. I wanted to sort of shoehorn in gently the notion that there were women around this country, in particular, particularly Jewish women, who, who were a little bit, a lot more ahead of their time, who understood that things were going on, who were rabble-rousers, people like Emma Goldman and later Bell Moskowitz and others who really, you know, paved the way for, I mean, I'm naming just a couple. I mean, there were many, but we don't know about them. But what they did, they weren't sitting around watching television. They were reading and exchanging ideas. And a lot of that happened, or a good part of it happened, in the Jewish papers and in and in the readings and the 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 breakup of Judaism into the you know reform and conservative and all of that business that created a lot of people who had a lot to say and I had to sort of try to include that in this woman's life because without that without that she wouldn't have been able to function as she did and it's complicated business because you don't want to put too much of in it you don't you don't want you you have to spice these characters very carefully. You have to really allow them some space to be big, but not too big. Hoshana is big. I mean, she's a big character. She's huge. I mean, she carries a lot of the narrative. And and she was just an accident. You know, I mean, yeah. Moshi ended up in the basement of this grocery store was just it was just one of those things that just sort of seemed to work on the page. And she was the one who, you know, talk about the magic of fiction. She was the one who just grew and grew. Their, their love just happened, you know, for me as a writer. Mm-hmm. And she really, you know, pushed this story into, into places where I didn't expect it to go. Wow. I love knowing this. And, you know, your book also reminds us that there was a time when polio was just a scourge. And... There are two characters in this book who are afflicted with it and, and disabled because of it. And it's so interesting to see the different ways that they manage their lives. And, and this is a very important thing, I think, to think about is that she is able to, let's see, you you write, there, um, there was not an ounce of bitterness or a shred of shame for her and her, quote, charity of mind versus, right, a person like Doc Roberts, who, you know, he just lacks humanity. He marches in the KKK parade and everybody knows it's him in the white sheet because of the way he walks and and his girth. I think about the ways that uh, maybe I'm not surprised that she just grew and grew and she's such a, a heart of this book, but she reminds me of the ways in which 
you know, nobody's brand of misery is somehow worse than anybody else's brand of misery. And we individually manage our lot in life, either with a kind of sheer force of will uh, and charity, like she does, or something really negative and terrible, some poisonous thing, a lack of humanity, like we see in the doctor. So I just, I, I found that so interesting to hear that we, that there were two characters that were were living with the same affliction. Uh, yeah, so at, that's a very important kind of thing that comes through for me as a reader is the different ways that they that each one is managing their lot in life. Well, I never thought of it that way. Um, but uh, you know, though Doc Roberts is a you know he's 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 an antagonist, I suppose you could say. <clears throat> he's not presented as a sort of one dimensional evil Scrooge. I mean, no, he has he has been a victim. Of he's been a he has been vic, not victimized but he's a victim himself in yeah. a society that you know doesn't really give much credence or much space to people who are quote unquote disabled and that's one of the lessons I learned at camp you know when I was working with disabled children and also I have a niece who passed away but she was severely disabled and you know you learn that that this is just an outward cover and that beneath the cover everything that is human. In them is in you is just the same in them, and you know, they, they it's just you're you're parked at a different radio station. That's all, <laughs> and uh, there's no there's no great difference. I mean, Doc was a flawed man and had matters going a little to the right or a little to the left, matters that were far out of his control. He might have been a great man, uh, and similarly with Chona, had she you know had things going a little to the right or to the little to the left, she might have been. A less of a person, a less of a woman, but you know the the big mitigating, you know, positive factor in her life was that she was loved, and she loved, and Doc didn't have that. Not in his life. He had, you know, he had he had authority and had power, and he had a family and a wife, but he wasn't. He didn't feel loved, and well, there it is. Yeah, that's so true. Making it sound, I'm I'm leading us into some dark spaces with this, with my line of questioning. But I have to say, I also laughed quite a lot while I was reading, as I do when I read your books. You have such a way with with humor in your writing, but it's a humor that is at its heart just human, real. I mean, life is so absurd. As a writer, what is it? Do you sort of sit there at your typewriter? And do you still use the typewriter, by the way? Do you sit there at the typewriter and just sort of laugh? No, not that. I mean, I use a typewriter for the first, you know, <laughs> pages or so. And then, uh, you know, I give it up. In this book, I used everything. To, I mean, I had a hard time getting this one going. So I used typewriter. I used longhand. I used index. I used everything until I got it moving. And then I, you know, by the time I diced all everything out, just cleared out the decks. And with Moshi, I was just straight, straight computer. But look, I like to laugh. You know, I like laughing with people who hate my guts. As long as they make me laugh, it, don't, it doesn't bother me. It's okay. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to. I mean, you know, the absurdity of the human comedy is just funny, but but not, you know, at my own expense as well. I mean, you know, so I, everyone gets a little bit of shade in this book everywhere. <laughs> the group, you know, it doesn't matter, white, black, Italian, Jewish because it's just funny because it's true that's the thing i mean there's a there's not all of it but there's a lot of truth to it and a lot of the stuff that happened in this book really happened 
either either in my imagination or I read it somewhere or, you know, or, you know, I heard about something like it, you know. I mean, this stuff is real. You know, it's real to me. And if it's real to me, then, I, you know, then it's usually hopefully real to the to the reader. When you're writing a novel, you are pulling out, you know, you 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 flicked every knob on the spaceship and you pressed every pedal and you yanked every every button that could be yanked to make that thing go. And if it's going, you just keep doing it. You're like the the, the guy behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, you know, like pay no attention to the man behind that curtain, you know, just <laughs> just keep blowing smoke until there's no more smoke to blow. <laughs> uh, that's kind of, and it, it should be fun, you know, because what's the point of sharing a story if there's nothing funny and there's no fun and joy in it, you know? It's true. Well, I was reading an introduction to a Richard Hugo book where William Matthews says this, he says, the continuous reclamation of a hometown, the original mystifying poise between self and others is the lifelong imaginative project of any adult. So, you know, I sort of think about that a little bit when I pick up a new book. The continuous reclamation of a hometown is the lifelong imaginative project of any adult. And I wonder what you make of of such a statement, this idea of that it's that this is what we're always sort of chasing, or this is what drives us, or this is what moves us, or what do you think about I, that? I mean, I, listen, I love, I, I love it. Look, I've been around the world. I mean, I've been all over, both as a musician and as a writer. And, you know, I was a college student. I spent a semester in France. I learned a lot. The main thing I learned is that, well, well first of all, one of the lessons I learned is that I, I wish we would we could all make high school students spend a year abroad doing something, building wells in Peru or whatever. But we all want the same thing, essentially. All of us want the same thing. And that's, that's you know, we want a family. We want, a, you know, we want love. We want we want comfort, you know. We all want the same thing. And how we go about getting it is, I suppose, differentiates us from, you know, one nation from the next and one people from the next. But but it's it's basically we, we all want the same thing. We want family, we want love, we want a community. What what ha what has happened is that this sense of when you're going back to tribalism and the business of identity, which is really, you know, where I kind of live, and that's 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 a you know treacherous place to be at times. Because the least word that threatens our image of ourselves is unbearable uh, when it's uttered by someone else. But you know we have we have no trouble when when that with that qualifier when it's applied to someone else in different circumstances. And that's really where a lot of the whole business of community and identity begins to become toxic and poisonous. Because it, it really what it translates into is that. My community is better than yours, and my tribe is better than yours. My language, my way is better than yours. And in that, in that, in that regard, religion becomes a kind of baseball bat that people swing around to knock out anybody who's who's in their way in order to absolve themselves of the responsibility of caring about someone else. But I find that you know, love is just a lot easier. It doesn't take as much work, and laughter is the greatest gun in the world. It's the greatest cannon in the world. And, you know, I'll go to my grave, believe in that. And that's really what it is. I mean, it, we can find fancy ways to say it and we can write fancy laws to keep 
our way of life, whatever our means in motion. But it's not going to change the inevitable desire of people to love one another and to be part of a community. James McBride, thank you so much. What a thrill to be able to get to talk to you. What an honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> Gee, well, that's that's that. Those are some nice words. Just just keep those. Just uh, <laughs> just write me a check. I'll give you my address. <laughs> <when it's over. laughs> Well, thank you very much. It's a delight to talk to you. Very deep conversation. James McBride is the author of The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. It's published by Riverhead. James McBride is the author of Deacon King Kong, the National Book Award winning The Good Lord Bird, and the American classic The Color of Water, as well as other novels and story collections and a biography of James Brown titled Kill Him and Leave. He received the National Humanities Medal, is an accomplished musician, and a distinguished writer-in-residence at New York University. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.